This is Dead Stick Radio, episode 18, recorded Sunday, November 15, 2020, setting a world record in a home-built airplane. I'm Jim Price. Uh, basically, I did a work career of 32 years with General Motors, following a stint in the military where I was drafted and went over to Vietnam and did the war gig over there, which I hated. And uh, after I'd gotten back, I started out, my brother was working at General Motors, and I was lucky enough that he got me a job there. I was hanging gas tanks on cars on the assembly line to begin with while I was going to university. And as I got my degree and worked up, I got into working in, in the engineering area. So I did mechanical, electrical, and quality control work for General Motors. And as I mentioned, I did it for 32 years Prior to my retirement, I set my goal of retiring at 20, uh, or excuse <laughs> me, at 55 when I was uh, in my 20s, uh, and it worked out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to say that I retired at 20, although I wish I could have been able to. Well, that's but my goal, rate, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I had a great time doing it. I got into all kinds of different areas, uh, but along the way, uh, I had begun flying uh, and taking lessons while I was working for General Motors. I got my pilot's license uh, during the early part of that career. My first plane was actually a Mooney Super 21, and mm-hmm. I had a blast with it. Uh, I got a chance to fly it over a lot of the U.S., but not all of it. Uh, but one of the ventures that I did with the Mooney was flying over to Oshkosh, Wisconsin for the home-built fly-in that's there. And in turn, uh, I got completely hooked on aviation in general. I had been, obviously, for quite a while. I did a lot of flying in helicopters in Vietnam. Uh, loved every second of being in the air. Uh, but being at Oshkosh, I got a chance to see Dick Rattan do a aerobatic routine in the Long Easy and began to explore what it would take to build my own airplane. And after oh, wait, having, we're, we're, sorry yeah. to interrupt you. Were you sure. living in Detroit at the time? I was. Yes. Oh yeah. I'm in I, Boise. I, I I'm in Boise, Idaho now, but I was working in the Detroit area for that time. In the GM kind of main headquarters in their engineering. Yeah, I start. I started out uh, working at an assembly plant called the Willow Run Assembly Plant, uh, where the B-24 bombers were made and produced during World War II. And that's where I had gotten my pilot's license at. And then as I progressed and worked up the ladder in my work career, I was at the tech center uh, as both uh, an engineer uh, and quality control person at that time. And after a while there, I had shifted to working at the General Motors Proving Grounds, uh, which I was a manager of a, quite a number of engineers there. And that was over a lot of the engine controls that I was managing the folks for writing software for testing in the assembly plants uh, in that environment. But it was a great place to work with a lot of fun people. Uh, to include, I got certified there for being a high-speed, high-G driver, which allowed me to use any of the test tracks at the General Motors Proving Ground. So uh, at lunchtime when I got bored and I wanted to shake the cobwebs, I could take a Corvette out and run over 150 miles an hour around the racetrack. So 
Where, where, really, where is that? Is that in Detroit, uh, too? Uh, no, it's actually in Milford, Michigan. So ah. uh, it's outside Detroit. So you, you kind of stayed in that area, that Michigan area. I stayed in the Michigan area for my work career, correct. And I did travel a lot to various assembly plants mm-hmm. during that time. And uh, so I got did get a chance to travel uh, rather extensively, some international. Uh, but for the most part, I was based uh, around the Detroit area for the entire time. Yes, and, uh, yep. So, Any questions? Yeah, so when did, uh, you said you, you got to see uh, uh, the Rutans there flying the Long Easy in, in, uh, at Oshkosh. What year was that? Ooh, uh, that would probably be in the uh, middle 70s, so about 75, 76 uh, that I was there uh, when Rutan was coming. And uh, from the standpoint of you know, being around the home-built world really sets a hook. And I had envisioned having a chance to build my own. And ironically enough, my boss at General Motors, when I was at the Willow Run assembly plant, had been building a Christian Eagle too. And I had followed his progress along the way. And I got lucky enough before my Long Easy was done, uh, while I was in the build process of my Long Easy, he had gotten it flying and only had a very few amount of hours on it and called me up and he said, do you want to buy my plane? You're the only one I'd want to sell it to. Uh, so how can you resist an offer like that? So I brought a Christian Eagle that was absolutely impeccably built and had a chance to have that for three years. And I did competition aerobatics with it. So that gave me uh, a great opportunity to get used to unusual attitudes and then also develop a lot of skill sets, uh, certainly like uh, the Formula One racers do in handling of planes and turbulence and recovering from unusual attitudes and things of that nature. So those skill sets can save you. In fact, they actually did save me one time. I had an engine out in a Piper Cherokee that I had purchased for my wife and uh, had to land on a highway. And in the process of landing with a low wing plane, I couldn't ascertain that a vehicle was going a bit faster than what I had thought. And my (laughs) right main tagged the rear of a van and put me literally at knife edge right off the highway. And had I not known those aerobatics techniques with getting the rudder in uh, to keep the nose up and enough aileron forces to get it back under control, which I did. And I landed in front of them and everything was fine. But uh, those experiences are very valuable with handling unusual attitudes and and overall techniques of the comfort level of handling a, handling a plane. So but, just uh, to, just to yep. get a, a, an understanding of like, what age were you with your Mooney and then into the Christian Eagle? How old uh, were you when you were in? starting to venture into owning your own airplane? Uh, I was probably 25 uh, by the time I had my first airplane. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, that led me getting over to Oshkosh and seeing a lot of the rattan activity. And that inspired me probably the most to seeing Dick Rattan do the aerobatic routines that he did over there. And that carried forward and... 
I purchased the plans and then began to analyze, could I really do this? Uh, because even back then, when you buy just a set of plans, it's quite different than building an RV where you get an entire kit and then you just put the pieces together here uh, with a long you make the entire plane, which is obviously a lot more work. And composites were fairly new back then too, weren't they? They were. There was a lot of question on longevity and, uh, you know, different elements. Uh, whenever you bring a new media like that out, there's got to be uh, reasonable skepticism until they all get proven out. But I got a chance to spend some time with Bert Rattan. Uh, back in the day when he first began all that action, we used to have what was called bowl sessions at Oshkosh. And you'd sit under a wing and have a chance to chat with what about whatever was on your mind. And it was really inspirational and in many ways. And I had queried him one time, how many G's will a long, easy structure take? And uh, back before he had to guard because of the legality of saying things, he had told me that a normal average build plane would go over, over 14 G's. Wow. So, that, yeah, that's a real wow factor. So from that standpoint, I knew uh, I would be able to do the aerobatics that I saw Dick Rattan do with it. Uh, and my intent wasn't to try and use it like the Christian Eagle. It's not that kind of the plane. But mild aerobatics are a lot of fun in it as well. And it is a very uh, reasonable handled plane for doing that. Okay. So my plane... When I had begun it, uh, it took me about 11 years and over 4,000 hours of construction. So I put a lot of TLC in my plane, and I was very, very meticulous with all of the steps, with trying to maintain weight characteristics to try and keep it down, because I know that it was directly tied to performance levels. And likewise, I wanted to make sure that uh, every element on it was done as well as it could be. As an example, when you put the wings on the plane, you're allowed up to three inches of sweep offset. And I had a 16th of an inch with the tolerancing that I did. So, uh, <laughs> That's incredible. you know, I, I tried to nail it in every way I could. And when I got done after all that work, uh, I was so inspired. I jumped in it, and every moment that I could to find a new place to explore in the U.S. and Canada, I was off to do it. So on a year and two months following its first flight, I got a chance to have it in every state in the continental United States, every province of Canada to include the Northwest Territories, with the exception of Newfoundland, and even into Mexico. So the plane had seen a lot of turf already, and then a light bulb clicked and said, when I came in, I, my empty weight was, forgive me for using pounds, but it was 907 pounds uh, empty weight. And I realized that was in the bottom 10 percentile of the planes that were built. And what else might I do with that? And a friend of mine loaned another chap his airplane, and went out and set an altitude record. And, and who that was that? With the, 
that was uh, Norm Howell set the altitude record with uh, Terry Schubert's Long Easy. So he borrowed Terry Schubert's airplane. Uh, he went out and got an altitude record. I believe it was about 25,000 feet. Don't quote me on exact numbers, please. But it was about 25,000 feet and uh, with a 235. And I knew my plane came in probably bottom 10 percentile of lung easies in weight category that have 320 engines on. And that was with a full IFR panel. And I knew that I could strip some weight off and get it down substantially even from that. Uh, so when I had seen him do that, I said, well, I might as well go after it. And at that time, I began to do some research. And for, for a change, I thought I'd tap some of the world leaders in design areas that interest me. After I had done my homework, I approached five world leaders in different design areas and basically posed the question after I'd given them some data and let them know that I'd done my work, what would you do if you were doing it? And without exception, all of those five people helped me. And for me, that was the real six, the secret to my success is I could not have done this on my own. It's a collective effort. Uh, I called up the colonel that's in charge of the physiology department for the Air Force, as an example. And uh, the first time I told him what I was going to do, uh, I, I'm sure he thought I was a fruitcake and he kind of hung up the phone on me. And the next time I went back to him, I gave him a lot of data before he could hang it up. And I said, I need some help. And he basically said, get down here to Brooks and I'm going to run you through the ringer. So he basically uh, got me set up with doing all of the instrumental things that the U-2 and the SR-71 high altitude pilots do because I knew I was going into a phenomenally hazardous environment. And at 35,000 feet, which is where I got to, uh, you were, your useful consciousness is about 30 seconds if you lose oxygen. So I had explored all the things that could be impediments, and I w tapped the right sources to prepare me for that. So that's jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, yeah, so on, why don't we – that yep. might be a good time, I think, to explain to all the listeners <clears throat> that aren't familiar with altitude records um, what's, what we're talking about here. So you are the current world altitude record for C1A weight class aircraft which is airplanes less than 500 kilograms or 1,100 pounds. Is that right? That, that is correct, yeah. Takeoff weight has to be uh, 1,100 pounds or less. And then basically uh, I hold two world altitude records and have since 1996, so it's been uh, 24 and a half years. No one has taken my record away. And I had the good fortune of taking the – altitude record away from Pushy Galore, which was Bruce Bohannon's plane, which is currently in the uh, EAA museum hanging on the wall over there. Right. Uh, so he, uh, he set that record with nitrous, didn't he? That is correct. He set it with nitrous. And uh, if you have a chance to read his article, it's very fascinating. I, uh, he actually ran out of nitrous at altitude and the plane was without the power above a sustainable 
controllability, and it literally fell out of the sky for a while. So, uh, and at 62 degrees below zero, which I was in temperature, your canopy's completely frosted over. So that wouldn't have been a lot of fun. <laughs> so, but uh, yep. Why, why don't we explain to everybody how these records work first? Um, okay. Before we start talking about uh, exciting stories, just Absolutely. so people understand kind of the rules behind it here. So okay. the, these records, they're managed by FAI. Is that right? Uh, affirmative. Yeah. The uh, organization in the U.S. Uh, reports to FAI. And, and that's they, the NAA? FAA, NAA, correct. Yep. National Aeronautical Association, I think. That is, I believe, correct, yes. And FAI and, is Federation uh, Aeronautique Internationale or something. It's exactly, French, French, yeah. It? yeah. Uh, it is French, yes. And they have maintained all air and space records uh, from the beginning of time. So the French began that activity. The National Aeronautic Association is the U.S. arm of that, and they do a preliminary certification uh, when uh, approval of your being able to go after the record, so they uh, you buy into being able to sanction it, and then after you do it, they uh, both organizations review the data uh, for authenticity. Sorry, um, and uh, from that standpoint, uh, it's a little bit of a unique thing from a standpoint of going after this because you have to get the certification to do it before you do it you'll get an uh, official that will come out to the airport as an example and they actually put a I put a camera in my plane uh, for the altitude and horizontal requirement I needed a clock and the uh, airspeed indicator being videoed during that window of time that I did that. Uh, but I had a person that actually sealed me in the cockpit with certified altitude measuring equipment before I went up. And then they break the seal uh, after you come back down to verify. So you don't run off to another airport, uh, modify the equipment on board and say, gee, I had a really good flight. Uh, and so it, it, there isn't any in-runs relative to getting around the system to make sure that it's an authentic uh, venture. Right. So the FAI also breaks these records down into weight class and propulsion. Is that right? So they have yes. C1A, mm -hmm. B, or C1A0, A, B, C, D, E, F, etc., going up by uh, weight groupings measured in kilograms. Uh, Affirmative. C C1A is uh, like, I think, 300 to 500 kilos, I think, which means up to about 1,100 pounds gross. Uh, that is correct. It's between 661 to 1,102 pounds takeoff weight. And that right. includes pilot, measuring equipment, uh, fuel, literally everything. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And then the then they also um, split these records out based on propulsion. So there's uh, internal combustion engine, jet, electric, rocket, um, that kind of thing. Exactly. And uh, you're well versed on that. I'm glad you're helping me along with it. It's great 
uh, to make sure nothing gets missed like that. But uh, I had a, I could be turbocharged, supercharged, nitrous, uh, anything like that, uh, and be able to do it in the internal combustion category. But I had a question that I never had adequately answered for me. I had suspicions when Bruce Bohannon did his record with nitrous that it might be disallowed because one of the elements of the record states that there is no auxiliary power allowed. And when my definition of a gas in a bottle that's expended and no longer usable or there, uh, it's not the same as a turbocharger or supercharger. So how they put together the formula to allow nitrous, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I've never had that ad adequately answered. But as you're interested in that information as well, I thought I'd forward that to you. Yeah, so going into your record attempt, Bruce Bohannon built a uh, pusher Formula One racing airplane uh, called a Miller Special, or I think he purchased it from Jim Miller. Uh, yes, I regardless. believe there were three of those at one time. Yeah, and they're a, uh, the engine is in the back, the propeller's in the back, uh, it looks very streamlined. This one is yellow. Um, it, it's tricycle gear with the retractable nose wheel. And the pilot sits in kind of like an egg-looking cockpit with a very pointy nose. Yeah, very pointy nose. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it is a real aesthetically appealing design. I think it's a, a unique, very beautiful design. Uh, it doesn't have a very big wing. And I would say personally... That's the type of thing that I had looked at is if I were to build a design-specific airplane, the long easy isn't the optimum plane for this. Uh, you could do better. Right. That makes sense. Like a, a turbocharged sailplane or something like that would be what I would gear towards if I were to try and do that again. Yeah, or like a motor glider or something. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Really long yeah. aspect, yeah. high aspect wings. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so what what Bruce did is he used a racing airplane, which is very low drag, uh, but also very high speed, um, single seat, very small airplane, and he created power up to altitude using nitrous, high RPM, um, and probably things like high compression or high compression and so on to get the right. power. Is that right? I haven't read the article. Yes, basically that's it. You know, and nitrous will give you all the power you want. Uh, the problem with nitrous is you have to flow a lot more fuel. Uh, his plane was light enough. He had the availability carrying more fuel than what I was able to do and not bump over the 1,102 pounds uh, with my airframe. Uh, but on the same token, uh, you know, there are pros and cons to every design like anything. And... I very much admired what Bruce did. Uh, it was a little ironic, and I don't know the exact timeline, but he only had the altitude record uh, for a few months before I had taken it away from him. <laughs> and that that I went up to him at Oshkosh when he was with the Shell booth. Uh, he was working with Shell at that time one time, and I was dropping some hints on who I was, and he was not really picking it up. So 
just for the heck of it, I said, Bruce, I'm sorry to have taken the record away from you, but not that sorry. <laughs> and his eyes got wide and he grabbed my throat and he said, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a good moment in time. there. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, I think the world of him, you know, he's a great chap. Yeah, I'd love to meet that guy. Uh, and to take an airplane that wasn't even designed for flying high or, or slow or anything like that and set the record is quite a feat, I think. I, I think it really is. And uh, I think Hoot Gibson had a chance to fly that plane and set some records with it as well. The big advantage uh, that I saw is I'm going head to head as a lay person, uh, not with deep top pockets against Shell Oil Company and Bruce Bohannon with a full race team. And that's a hard task to do. And uh, I had some excellent managers, managers at General Motors. And one of them in particular used to jerk my chain a little bit with coming up and dropping these little nuggets for me to think about. And he came up to me one day and he said, leverage adversity. And, you know, I went away going like, what's he talking about? And then I ran into this program and I'm going to head to head with Shell Oil Company. How do I do that? And it dawned on me, why don't you approach the University of Michigan Aerospace Engineering and outline what you've done and where you want to go and ask them to review the entire program and then make recommendations. And the next thing you know, I had five professors and 35 students working on my program. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I do in-runs here and get all that going. And I don't know whether you're aware, but the Army built two long easies and they ran an exhaustive flight test program on them and collected an amazing amount of data. Well, I had one of the U of M professors look through that data and he picked up some soft points with things that I could work on. And one of which was that my minimum power speed uh, was uh, below my stall speed. So in order to get the airframe as high it was, as it was capable of going, I needed to bring the stall speed back to the minimum power speed and then they'd be aligned. And the way I did that is we did a design of experiments uh, process of adding vortex generators uh, on the airfoil. So I got unlimited wind tunnel time. Uh, we ran the vortex generators in multiple places and then came up with the best results. But before I go too far on that, I better backtrack just a minute because I'm missing a couple things. I wanted to mention the rules that we had talked about on what it takes to set a record because we talked about the weight, which was key and critical. Uh, but the other restrictions, the one that I considered most laughable is the pilot must live 24 hours after the event. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like, I'm, boy, I'm glad they put that in there. Uh, and that no... Uh, FAA regulations be broken. So that means I had to accommodate and assure that I had my half hour uh, daytime fuel reserve when I landed. Uh, you know, I, I just had to make sure that I went through everything like that. Auxiliary power must not be used. We talked about that a little bit with nitrous or not and what those things might be. And lastly, you have to beat the previous record 
by 3%. And that's one, even as the current record holder, I've wanted to see my record beaten. And I've given a number of folks and published uh, the major elements of what I did in order to accomplish this task because I want to see aviation thrive and go forward. But uh, the 3%, when you get higher and higher like we are, uh, it becomes more and more difficult to do exponentially. And I'm wondering if at some point maybe they ought to shift that down a little bit because it's quite a task. Yeah. Okay. So to give people context in what you're talking about here, so your airplane, your long easy that you've built, is a home-built, all-composite airplane. Um, it's It's got the horizontal part of the tail on the nose, and then the rudders and the vertical stabilizers are on the swept wingtips. Is exactly. that a good explanation? With a pusher propeller again. With then, a pusher propeller, and yep. probably the most unique thing, you mentioned the verticals, which are the rudders that are on the end of the wings, the main wing, and the rudders only go outward, uh, so only one rudder deploys at a time. It's not like a standard tail where the uh, basically the, the ones the, the tail moves the one direction or the other. And right. and yeah, exactly right. right. Okay. Yeah. So in yours, the left rudder works to the left direction. And if, in yours, if you step on both the pedals, do the both the rudders go out? They do, and I actually use that as braking action when I'm landing. I <laughs> use it as a speed brake. So my favorite things to do with it are either slip it like crazy coming in, which is very typical of a lot of planes, or I like to uh, deploy. It has a speed brake on the belly. Uh, so I'll deploy that down and then also uh, bring both rudders out at the same time. But the rudders are speed limited, and they have override springs on them so you don't overload the, uh, the rudder surface. Uh, so they won't deploy at high speeds. Right. So this... So you've also got an O320, did you say, in your airplane? Or is it 360? That is correct, yeah. The, Rattan started out, and he spec'd a 235 for the long easy. And uh, he really vehemently maintained that you have to stick with a 235. And I was hemming and hawing about that because its takeoff performance isn't that good. And, you know, I wanted to carry large fuel payloads. Uh, when I went to Alaska, as an example, I had the entire back of the plane filled with canned goods and camping supplies and a, a full tank of gas, uh, often uh, going up to the Yukon to canoe the Yukon River. And I needed uh, as much range as possible. I went from Winnipeg to Whitehorse in one day, and I talked to a Cessna pilot uh, that had taken him three days to do that same trip. And that's because <laughs> the long is so capable. So, you know, I know you guys know those places and those distances. They're pretty significant following the Alaska Highway up. Yeah, uh, so so that's the yep. same engine that's typically in, I think, Cessna 172s. Some 172s found, have it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I had actually started out with a... Uh, the low compression version of which you can use uh, auto gas or uh, the original 80 octane that you almost can't find anymore yep. instead of the 100 octane. But when I did the altitude record, I had an engine build up and I went to the pistons that are used in the helicopter. So it's only a half a 
a compression point higher, but it was slightly higher. And I also used a dual electronic ignition. So those, those are the two things that were really significant. And you've got to learn a lot of the background things uh, that are kind of having some previous experience to know where what areas are problematic. As an example, with the electronic ignition, at altitude, if you don't over-over-insulate the spark plug wires, they're going to arc onto the cylinders, and you're not going to get the spark plugs to fire because at altitude, uh, you, don't, you don't have the resistance uh, in the air, so the arcing becomes much easier to have happen. So, you know, there are a thousand little things like that that by having read a lot of aviation magazines, I knew how to prevent that being a problem. Right. So you took, so your airplane, uh, so a Cessna 172 can do about 110 knots or so for about 400 miles. You're doing uh, probably 140 knots for 1,000 miles. Is that about right? Uh, that's about right, yeah. You know, I can, depending upon where I put the go button, i.e. the throttle, yeah. uh, I, I can determine the range. And a lot of times I'll do an economy of cruise and I'll be doing 150 knots uh, uh, thereabouts. Yeah. And I can be up at six hours at a time. So it's some pretty significant range by doing it that way. Right. So and and Cessna, um, knowing kind of from some experience, they kind of top out. They'll stop climbing about ten or twelve thousand feet, probably. Where you took the same engine that's in a Cessna in your home built Long Easy to thirty five thousand feet, which is even higher than a lot of airlines will cruise at. That's that's exactly correct. In fact, uh, it was rather funny uh, when I'm doing that altitude record and I'm. I'm over the Lake Tahoe area. I was working with Center uh, that was over in California, and they wanted to know my altitude more often than what I wanted because I had to crack my mask to talk to them, which was really awkward on a pressurized mask, and I'll get into some of those things. But, uh, you know, they weren't going to run jets over me, and that's what I was somewhat laughing about because I know they're not going to put them under me, and they're not going to go over me when I'm up to 35K. (laughs) <laughs> so so the the engineering behind this thing uh just to kind of bring some people give some people some context the game with going high is as you go up with altitude the air gets thinner and thinner so the amount of fuel being burned by the engine to main to maintain your combustion uh mixture setting uh for for good uh, combustion yeah it's uh, called stoichiometry yes yeah thank you and that's that, your that's air to word. fuel ratio yeah, so that drops. So the power that the motor makes as you go up in altitude starts dropping. Yes. The aircraft needs a certain amount of horsepower to stay straight and level or climb. Affirmative. So the higher you go, the lower your power available is. And your service ceiling, the highest you can pause, your maximum altitude is when your horsepower available equals your required horsepower at the airspeed. Did I get that right? Uh, that is correct. And actually, I believe they uh, manufacturers cap service ceiling at uh, a climb rate of 50 feet uh, a minute. And I had capped my 35,000 activity 
that I altitude that I gotten to, I was just slightly below 50 feet a minute at that point in time. So it's not just the engine that's causing you to uh, have the limits that you do. It's the propeller in the thinner air. It's the fact that, as you mentioned, the horsepower coming out of the engine becomes less and less and less. I calculated that I must have been at about 37 horsepower out of a engine with the way I had it tuned, it probably would do about 180 horsepower at sea level. So it was down to 37 horsepower. And so that gets transmitted. Uh, I could did not have the propeller that I wanted to keep the engine in the RPM band that I wanted uh, at altitude, which would have given me a little more power because if I did that, my climb up to altitude would have taken too long. I would have needed too much fuel, and that extra fuel, which is called consumables, would take me over the weight limit that I needed to be. So there's a whole lot of factors that you've got to put together that are kind of a sliding scale of what is the best formula. Right, and they all kind of come back to that original problem of uh, horsepower available and required. Is that right? It really does. You know, that is one of the primaries. And one of, I had written Bert Rattan, who was one of the world leaders that I had mentioned, to give me the suggestions on what he would do. Uh, and he was nice enough to write up a page and a half of suggestions and then go out to talk to Mike Melville, who is his right-hand man and chief test pilot, and say, did I miss anything before he sent that off to me with things to work on? And one of the things of which was to uh, mention uh, strap a turbocharger on. And I didn't have the weight uh, availability to do that easily. It would have taken a lot more work than what I wanted to do. And right. that, w- so, that would have put you into a different class too, wouldn't it, if, if you put in a turbocharger? Uh, it doesn't, actually. The, the category that I was in uh, states... Uh, normally ask, uh, excuse me, uh, piston engine. Okay. Okay. Piston and turbines are separated, but not turbocharged or non-turbocharged. Yeah. But if he goes over that 1100 pound limit or the I'm 500 the kilos, then yep. he bumps up. He goes exactly to right. Yep. Yeah. Right. So and all then, these things starting from the university of Michigan are, are what you use to get back to that original equation. Yeah, I put hundreds of little things together that collectively added up to a monumental jump in technology. And uh, there weren't any really huge steps. The two most significant was the electronic ignition and the vortex generator development that I did. Uh, So those were the two majors. But how many people fly around, as an example, with the engine hook that you use to hang the engine on the airplane and thereafter don't ever use it again. Uh, When you take that engine hook off, it's heavy by my standards. And weight is your enemy uh, in, for aviation in general, it cuts the airplane performance down. So when you look at an airframe or anything like that, you have to be very open-minded 
to looking at every available opportunity. And those are the things that I looked at. I mean, I Bert Rattan designed the Long Easy that uh, quarter-inch uh, bolts were strong enough to hold it on. Well, he's got half-inch bolts in there. So it's way over-designed. And he said, people will freak out if I put a quarter-inch bolt in there. Well, I knew that. So I had the engineers at the U of M help me with shear analysis. And I could, I picked up in London when I looked at the P-51 engine that they have cross-section in there. In aviation, in several places, they've used bolts that are hollow because whether in shear, it's the major diameter of the bolt that gives you the strength. It isn't the core. So I did some analysis on that and I was able to drill the bolts on my uh, that mount my wing to my airplane hollow. <laughs> so, I mean, it it's phenomenal what you go to when you take it to that level. But it's the, taking things to that level that therefore has made it so hard that it's so difficult for anyone else to beat me. Right. So let's get back to those vortex generators for a second. I don't think we finished that conversation. So you had them, they, they wind tunnel analyzed, uh, little tabs mounted at slight angles to each other down the uh, the top surfaces of your of your uh, wings and your canard. Is that right? So uh, in, in your yep. airplane right now, your canard stalls first, which causes the which nose down. Which is a requirement. Yep. Yeah. Otherwise, when the main wing behind the canard stalls first, you end up in a deep stall condition, which is possibly unrecoverable. Deep so dude, how did you? Yes. Yeah. How how did you get around? Um, that situation, and, and, and you did put vortex generators on both surfaces, is that correct? Affirmative, yes. The vortex generators are stand-up devices that go, uh, they're less than a quarter inch above, they're probably um, five, six mils high would be my guess, uh, right off. Uh, they're 20 degrees off wind line, and that degree off wind line is what trips the air, causes a little mini tornado that will continue to foul the airfoil shape uh, almost regardless of angle of attack of the wing uh, to well after stall area. So what they'll do is they'll force the air to allow the airfoil lift longer than if they were not there. And... uh, they're, they're fascinating for me. You know, my first blush when I looked at Vortex Generators was, they're ugly, they have to cause a ton of drag. That's crazy. How can these things work so well? And I got a chance to hook up with a gentleman in Washington that sells for many manufactured airplanes. Uh, the Micro Aerodynamics is the name of the company. And the gentleman's name, who's the president, is Charles White. He... Uh, when I had begun to talk to him to get a little insight on what I should do and how I should do it on wind tunneling, uh, he said, I never had a wind tunnel. I know the flight characteristics and the results, but I've never seen wind tunnel. So this will be fun. Let, how many kits do you need? I'll send them to you. And <laughs> how many manufacturers would be that open? Uh, yeah. Because they don't know me that well, and I could misrepresent his product. But time and time again, I ran into these wonderful people, and I was actually able to give him substantiated data data from the wind tunnel 
that showed that I could increase lift by about 23% with a 2% drag penalty. So my disbelief of vortex generators was uh, eliminated, and I finally came to the algorithm and reasoning on why that was the case. And basically, you have to think about all the really uh, all the airfoils that you know of. And when you hear the term laminar airfoil foil, a lot of folks don't realize that there isn't an airfoil made that's 100% laminar. So at max cord thickness or thereabouts, all airfoils, the air goes turbulent. And at that point it goes turbulent, there's a significant energy loss. And what these vortex generators do is they trip that air before it's gone turbulent. So it's used the energy before it would have been used any anyway. And that's why it isn't the net loss that you normally would think it would be by just looking at it. So in terms of your aircraft stall speed, what did it go, what did it start as? And then what was it after you installed the VGs? Uh, I'd be stalling at about uh, in the neighborhood of 61 knots. And a lot of this is CG related. Right. And what you come up with stall numbers. Uh, but in, I, I, I can get down uh, to about 18 knots slower stall speed, having them on than not having them. So it's significant. And the reason that I have left them on after the altitude record is should I ever have an off airport landing, 16 knots is an am uh, amazing amount of energy. It's exponential for kinetic energy on, on landing. Right. So uh, in turn, it's a lot safer plane should I ever have a problem and have to land off airport. So now those, uh, those but numbers... But the plane handles a lot better with it, too. Let me add oh. that very briefly. Uh, so when you get the long, easy, slow in stock form, you'll get what's kind of a Dutch roll characteristic. So the plane is kind of wallowing around. The tail end is, feels like it's just kind of going in this big arc and circle. Uh, that's been eliminated with vortex generators. In addition, the aileron authority is vastly improved at low speeds. It's very authoritative. And I love that, that element of being able to make corrections that I want. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's some, been some pretty significant things. I can hold a nose off and touch down much slower so my brakes and my tires are, landing, are lasting much longer. So anyway, there's a bunch of side benefits that uh, I don't think commonly would be recognized. Awesome. Okay, next question. Were, were, those, uh, <laughs> were those numbers you had for, um, for the amount of uh, uh, extra lift and the, uh, the decreased or increased drag, is that just specifically on the long easy or were you only, were you only testing it on, on your plane? I only tested the airfoils on my airplane. And I had to be really careful uh, because, as mentioned, you have to have the canard stalling before the main wing. So I needed to make sure the canard would always stall, even with the Vortex Raiders, on both. And they're completely different airfoils. So hence the wind tunnel testing. And following the wind tunnel testing, I went up with a parachute on at high altitude. And I, would, I had uh, 
yarn on called tuffing. So about every inch uh, between and behind the vortex generators on the main wing and the canard, I could see exactly what the air was doing by what the yarn was doing on the airfoil as I slowed down slower and slower getting into a stall configuration. And I could verify that the canard always stalled before the main wing. But it was fascinating to watch that the area between the airfoil on the canard, which was the only area to stall, the yarn was completely reversed. So it was going uh, opposite direction of the way I was flying. And the (laughs) yarn behind the vortex generators was still laying down. So that airfoil section would still fly. Really? So that that part is fascinating to watch. It's a hoot. Wow. Brian, uh, I just put uh, VGs on the kit fox. I haven't test flown them yet. Mm-hmm. But it's my uh, understanding that VGs do a similar effect on all aircraft. Yeah, I was uh, I was I've looking been, at considering putting yep. them on the Buccaneer too because people had said they did the same thing. I was just wondering if the the numbers were the same on all all wings or 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 different on each each airfoil. Probably different on each airfoil. They are varied, and it depends on the airfoil. Like I have them on my Aranka Super Chief that I fly in the backcountry, and it transformed the plane. I absolutely love it, uh, but it they can be different. And I have been told by microaerodynamics they will not work on all airfoils. Uh, oh. But I believe you're going to be perfectly fine with a Kit Fox because that's a, a more normal airfoil. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But generally, the idea of them is to reduce the stall speed with minimal drag penalty. They reduce the stall speed, and then you get the other side effects, as an example, like with my Aranka. Uh, it is what is commonly termed as a rudder airplane, meaning that when you initiate a turn, you initiate it first with rudder and then follow it with aileron. Well, the ailerons work on it now that I have vortex generators on it, and I don't have to fly it the same way. So <laughs> there, there are some amazing effects uh, in addition to have a lot more authority with the tail on getting off sooner. I can get the tail up more quickly on rotation and and those kind of things. Why don't we get into the um, the, the electronic ignition and the okay. story behind uh, that? Okay. Uh, you know, we talked about, and I don't know whether it's worth, if we inspire anybody to go after a record, uh, let me just cover briefly the NAA prog- process with the sanctioning. I'd mentioned that briefly, but, you know, it costs money to join the FAI to get in there And then at the time that I did it, my sanctioning fees for the first record was $350, and then it was $250 thereafter. Then directing the official for the day, you had to pay them $275 plus their expenses. The registration fee, uh, once you believe you've gotten the record and they want to look over the data, the first record's $400, the second one's $325. And then there's rules uh, that are to include some they hadn't told me of. Like I, in order to do the altitude and horizontal, I needed a camera board to record a clock and the airspeed indicator to assure that I wasn't slowing down during the time that I was uh, doing my 90 seconds of level flight during that window. So I just want to touch on that. Okay. 
and then we'll jump over to the electronic ignition. So I appreciate your help and guide me along there. But uh, <laughs> I got lucky, and a good friend of mine who's a real gentleman, uh, he's since passed the business on, but I worked with Electro Air, and I had told them I had one electronic ignition. I had followed that up with buying a second one. So initially I had one magneto and one electronic ignition on because basically one electronic ignition will give you about 75% or thereabouts of what you're going to get uh, compared to uh, having the second one on uh, for benefits. So I initiated that. And one intriguing thing that you'll see, and I don't know whether you've had a chance to fly a plane with one electronic ignition and uh, a standard magneto on, but a lot of folks don't realize when you're at 10,000 feet with a magneto, your timing is way off from where it needs to be. And I kind of proved this for a while because I'd go up for a night flight and I'd have the electronic ignition on and I have somebody flying formation with me. And you'd see that uh, there was very little flame coming out of the exhaust. Uh, but when I would shut the electronic ignition off and run the magneto, there's flames about four or five feet coming out of the back of the exhaust. <laughs> so it's a major indicator of how far off the timing is. So, yeah, so just, yep. to, just to back up for everybody listening, right now, how most uh, airplane engines work is kind of like how old tractors worked. They use a, a gear-driven um, spark generator called a magneto uh, that fires a spark at the correct time to each cylinder to ignite the, the fuel-air mixture. And for uh, redundancy, most aircraft run two of these gear-driven spark generators, two of these magnetos, generally one on the top, one on the bottom. We can now replace those, and they're, they're, they're constant timing. So they always fire at, say, 28 degrees before top dead center of the piston. Right. Whereas we can replace one of these magnetos with an electronic ignition unit, which senses the uh, manifold pressure and maybe some other parameters as well, and then uh, uses a computer to calculate the correct timing and, and electronically fires the spark. Uh, at variable timing to for maximum power and efficiency. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's great. And, uh, you know, in addition, I went one step further because I had, in talking to my buddy Jeff Rose, who developed the system, and it's a carryover from race cars, and I'm sure for your Florida race plane, Scott, that you advance the timing uh, further than what, the average plane would be running at would be my guess. Uh, but the, as you mentioned, you have a manifold pressure sensor and it has a computer which has an algorithm for what advanced to be getting it to, uh, depending upon altitude. The problem that I had with my flight is nobody's been to the altitude that I have. So they don't know how much advance. And the only <laughs> way I could do that was to get a barometric pressure chamber and run those tables. And what they do in the automotive world is they do that in a chamber. Uh, they'll work at where detonation is, and they'll set their timing tables to avoid detonation. Uh, in my case, I waited till I was above 
25,000 feet and I flipped a switch that took me over to a manual mode. And then I had a switch that allowed me to advance the timing to whatever I wanted. So I actually did a similar process to what you would use if you lean an engine at flight. As you go higher, you bring the mixture back until the engine gets a little bit rough. And then typically you bring it back just slightly from that point to the engine smooths out again. I did the same thing with timing. So I advanced timing till the engine got rough where I was actually getting detonation and I was watching the RPM to do this. And then I retard it slightly from that point, And that would allow me to tune the engine to peak pressures all the time. Right. So detonation, for those that don't know, is a engine damaging phenomenon where when the cylinder is firing too early, it causes way too high pressure in the cylinder. Is that right? Uh, and then, exactly, then you get yeah. basically, I think, shockwaves bouncing in the combustion chamber, which will eventually cause holes and pistons. It will. And part of the reason you get the holes in the pistons is you're actually firing the uh, charge, the air-to-fuel charge, while the piston is still going up. And right. so it tries to get you driven backwards, and hence the damage that takes place uh, to the entire engine in that process. However, the automotive world uses these knock sensors, and when you fuel up with fuel, it will have a chance to recycle that, and it'll actually go to detonation for milliseconds and say, oh, that's too much advance. I'm going to set it back at that point. Uh, so cars, fortunately, have knock sensors. I tried to work with one and gin one up for the my flight and doing it here, but the engine has too much noise on it. I couldn't, I couldn't tune a knock sensor to give me what I wanted. Ah, ah okay. So you ran dual electronic ignition, and probably a secondary effect of that is you don't have to worry about pressurizing your magnetos due to the high-altitude misfire. Is that right? Exactly. I did not need to pressurize uh, the magnetos like the high-altitude Cessnas do or, or the like. And then uh, the other big element that you still had to concern yourself that I would, you know, I didn't, I couldn't find any data to know how much to insulate the spark plug wires, like I was mentioning, to assure I didn't get some arcing. But uh, that's a typical concern with the high altitude planes as well. I just yeah, so, overkilled it a little bit. So when, when, the, when the air pressure drops way down, air itself is an insulator. So when the air pressure drops down, the um, the uh, resistance of the air drops too, and then it it encourages sparking and arcing electrical arcing around high voltage sources, which is the spark plugs. Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So so you then insulated your spark plug wires to pre to prevent high altitude misfire or arcing under your cylinders. Exactly um, right. And you have manual adjustable spark timing. Um, to maximize power at high altitude. Uh, that That is exactly right. Uh, and, you know, from the standpoint of, I didn't see much that I could do to improve that area. I did have some people come to me with uh, various engine modifications, some of which was really be intriguing to me and I would have loved to have done. Like, you're probably familiar with the Indy race cars and how they have the turbocharged systems 
they've got pop-off valves. Are you yep. familiar with the term pop-off valves? I've so heard what of that it. Does, I'm familiar. Okay. What that does basically is it limits what kind of horsepower the engine is capable of producing. So the turbocharger can't spool up and dump unlimited pressures into the engine, which could give it the boost that it would need to have a higher performance level. Well, a chap made a recommendation to me that had played with something and wanted to carry it further on an experimental basis with a reverse pop-off valve. So basically what it would do is I could put diesel compression pistons in the engine and then limit the, the pop-off, the reverse pop-off valve would in, limit the intake side. So when I was at altitude, I'd be having full usage of 24, 25 to 1 compression ratio pistons in the engine, and down low it wouldn't harm it. And <laughs> there's some things like that I would have loved to work with, but I had blown one engine up in my test flights that caused an emergency landing at a major airport, and there are, there's not enough money in the world for me to ever want to do that again. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, in one of my test flights, uh, in working with the University of Michigan was extremely beneficial because what they told me is, hey, we got a way for you to run the numbers and see what your airframe is going to go up to. Go run this test flight from 25 to 28 or 29,000 feet and look at the rate that your climb, your vertical speed, is decreasing over time. And when you do that, you're going to plot the distance between, let's say, 15,000 to 28,000. You look at the vertical rate decrease over time, and you can plot it, and you can see what your airframe is capable of getting up to. And that got me within 1,000 feet, uh, my projection of what I did actually attain. So it worked very well. But at any rate, I'm up there doing one of my first runs, and I had asked a lot of folks different questions of what to do and how to do it. And I had one A&P mechanic who's renowned in my area that said, you don't need to use multiple viscosity oil. You can use straight weight oil. <laughs> well, you can see it coming. Here I am up there. Uh, yeah, straight under. And I got up, and my oil cooler return line, uh, so going from the oil cooler back to the engine, congealed. And that congealed caused an overpressure and the oil cooler rupture. Well, I didn't know it, what had happened at that time, but I'm on this test flight, and all of a sudden, poof, there's smoke in the cockpit. And as a pilot, what they teach you is when there's smoke in the cockpit, shut electrical off. So I got all the electrical off, which took me with the engine instruments off also. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I, I was going and descending, going IMC, uh, picking up a little bit of rime ice, nothing bad. And I figured, well, I'm going to fly the plane and figure it out when I get down below that cloud. Well, just when I'm breaking out the bottom widths of the cloud, I felt the engine start to go rough on me. And I put on the engine gauges, uh, and I saw I had no oil pressure. And about <laughs> 15 seconds later, bang, I had a rod through the block on the engine. 
Okay, so now I'm at flight level about 250, and I'm halfway in between Flint and uh, my home base airport in Michigan called Pontiac. Uh, but I calculated la later at 250, I could have landed anywhere in lower Michigan. Uh, but I turned on my radio and I declared an emergency with ATC and Flint was closer than Saginaw to my base airport. And I figured I'm going to need to make repairs. So I declared emergency. I went back over uh, the Flint airport and I was circling, but I was right over their radar and they got radar right on the airport. So they couldn't see me. So they said, we don't believe you're here. And I said, well, I'm looking at a 1827 and a, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, the air, the runways that were there, I'm looking at a VOR on the airport, and their end went silent for a minute, and they got the binoculars out, and they said, yep, yep, you're there. <laughs> and I proceeded to circle down, and, and, you know, not to belabor you with too long a story here, but it was fascinating. I saw a 7-2 ready to take off on the end of one of the runways, on uh, and... I basically said, why don't you let him gonna go? It's going to be a while before I can get down. And it was funny because the controller had come back to me and he said, sir, uh, we can't do that. You own the airport right now. <laughs> so I considered, I circled down. I made a normal landing. I had the big advantage because one of my dear friends who had helped me build the plane uh, she and her husband had built a long easy together, happened to be in the control tower controlling, uh, that day. <laughs> and, uh, I almost made a mistake cause I saved the nose gear deployment to reduce drag until the last second. And I was on short final and had forgotten it. And her voice was one that I would never forget. You know, I know her voice well, and all she said was gear check. <laughs> and I could scramble and get it down, which I did. I had a manual crank on it, and I got the gear down, and I landed normally. And it wasn't an actually until I got out of the plane and went to the back and saw all the oil uh, that I knew put it all together, what had happened. So that was one of the experiences. I mean, but it's an expensive thing. Uh, yeah. So that's what development is, and hence my resistance to want to be able to do this reverse pop-off valve uh, and that kind of thing. Right. That makes sense. So you, you focused on other things as well then, didn't you? Uh, a lot of weight reduction? A lot of weight reduction. Uh, let me get a chart out here so I can use that as a reference for myself, if you might. Sure. At 24 and a half years, it's been a little while for remembering all the data here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I put together a chart that I've given you. Uh, yep. And basically, what I did was list every item that I could potentially pull off the airplane. Uh, and that is like the starter, the flywheel, the belt, the generator, uh, the main radio, the nav head, the GPS. Every one of those items were tallied up, transponder. Uh, horizon, attitude indicator, those are all electronic and they're heavy. Uh, the vacuum uh, system, the ELT, the uh, breather tube, uh, the engine hook I had mentioned. Uh, you know, that's uh, engine hook is three ounces, but amazing when you put a lot of three ounces things together, it adds up. <laughs> and it's 
going into it not having that mindset that I think becomes really challenging for a lot of folks. So, you know, the bottom line is I took uh, almost 50 pounds off the airplane. And then I believe I had put, taken off, if I remember correctly, it's about uh, 30, 35 pounds off of myself as well. Uh, so I went on a major diet. I had been a wrestler and been used to taking weight off. It wasn't that big a deal back then. And uh, <laughs> I did everything possible. What uh, what kind of extremes did you go into besides the engine? Did I see you drilled out your brake discs as well? Yeah, uh, that's a great observation on your part. Uh, I got with a machinist because I had seen race cars with Swiss cheesed rotors, and I yeah. knew they were going to be a lot lighter than the other ones. So I looked at how much mass I could take out of that, and uh, I took about a third of the weight off the brake disc rotor. Uh, the downside of that is I later replaced it with standard ones because that brake pad friction uh, is, you need mass there to absorb that heat energy. And I could too easily fade my brakes out uh, with that setup, but it was perfect for the application that I had. So everywhere you could possibly look, I uh, tried to get every ounce of weight off the plane that I could. Uh, there was one that was driving me crazy because it would have, I have heavy duty welding cables that run the full length of the fuselage buried under the consoles. And for the starter? I, for the starter, yeah. And I really wanted to take those out. And it would have meant cutting the consoles apart uh, to get them out and then uh, putting the consoles back in and doing that twice, actually, once for the flight and then following that to get the plane back to normal again. And I wasn't quite willing to go that far, but there are nuggets that if I were to do this again, from what I've learned, I could do it better than what I had before. So for our listeners at home that uh, can't see the chart here, how much uh, total weight did you actually pull off of there? Uh, 47 pounds, 11 and a half ounces uh, was what I took off the plane. Uh, and, uh, it was awkward in the sense that when you pull the starter and the flywheel, you're doing all the hand propping, which is what you do on the race planes. Uh, but my electronics ignition system wasn't friendly for uh, hand propping. So that was a challenge. What uh, did you do, are, rubber band? Uh, no, I wore people out. <laughs> <laughs> I get people, method. yeah, you know, you look for young, strong guys like what you guys are uh, <laughs> at an airport and you say, hey, do you guys know how to hand prop? <laughs> yeah, and the wind so, would blow to them. Not They'll blow them away from the propeller, not into it. Yeah, yeah, you still have to be careful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my Oranka is a hand propper and uh, it it's still, I have a healthy respect for it. <laughs> so let, let's get into the actual altitude flight what's it like on the climb up uh how did you get there what's it like at altitude what did you have to deal with and then the descent well, let's start with the climb okay uh basically i only had about 12 gallons of fuel on the plane mm -hmm. uh so i mean it's really light compared to normal by the time i'd taken that weight off of it and me and all of those kind of things. I had an oxygen system that is a 
pressurized oxygen system. It's an air force system that once you open your mouth, you basically have oxygen blasted into it until you use your abdomen and do what's called a gutting process to blow against it to shut off the oxygen coming into you. And the reason that you have that is that gutting action that you have to shut the oxygen off forces the oxygen, uh, the internal uh, chest cavity area to have pressure that forces the oxygen out of your lungs and into your bloodstream. So at 35,000 feet, if you take 100% oxygen into your lungs, it will not even go into your bloodstream. And that's part of what the colonel that's in charge of the physiology department really wanted me to be aware of that and the reduction uh, as far as uh, what that entire environment was like, not only from the temperature, it was 62 degrees below zero, which you can't describe in the cold, and I couldn't come up with adequate heating systems without any weight, and, and weight was the key and critical element, so I thought I'd tough it out, uh, which I did. Uh, but at any rate, the Air Force system really worked well. The only thing that I did not have is a microphone in the mask, so I'd recommend anyone going through that to assure that they've got the microphone because that was awkward. I had to crack my mask to talk to ATC, and those are the kind of distractions that you just don't want to do on a flight. It seems minimal, but up there when you're a few knots away from stall speed, it's not, uh, it's not the way to do business. Yeah, so, so you're a, strapped in, yeah. pressure breathing, with the mask yeah. on all the way up, yeah. with, with hardly anything bottle. in the airplane. Yep. Yeah, I had a bailout bottle. I had a camera on board. So I had a buddy hand prop me. I had a limited amount of fuel, so I wanted to get right to the r- runway and take off. ATC had cl- cleared me to flight level 450 right off the deck, which made me think, boy, I hope I can do that. Uh, <laughs> my goal was I, I did it out of Minden, Nevada, because first it give me, gave me, if I recall correctly, about 6,000-foot elevation for the takeoff, which meant rather than going from sea level, I wouldn't have to burn any fuel getting up to the 6,000 feet. I'd be starting at the 6K. Yeah. And then uh, in turn, I wanted to climb as quickly as possible. Uh, out there, they gave me not a step climb, but I could go straight up. So I did all I could to stay in the window of keeping the engine temperatures where they needed to be, but doing the best climb rate that I could. And it was going like a homesick angel when it's that light. It just And was it getting hot deck. all the way up? Uh, no, it stayed normal temperatures. I've got a rather large NACA uh, inlet for cooling on my plane, and I have no cooling temperature issues at all. So that, that part wasn't bad at all. Uh, it never got hot up high, which some planes, I'm told, can. So I kept my climb going uh, along the way. And as we had mentioned, as you're going up, the climb rate is diminishing and diminishing uh, throughout. And uh, I had to decide where I wanted to cap the flight out. My goal, by going to Minden, it's a glider airport. And the reason that I chose that is the air traffic controller have a box there that's called the wave window and it's for sailplanes and it allows them to go up to positive control 
airspace, but without having to have the required transponders and uh, ATC contacts and those kind of things. Yeah, and IFR so, instrumentation. Yeah, we have exactly. One, yeah, I was able one to of those here in the Alberta IFR. as well. So outstanding. Yeah. Okay, so I use the wave window area. My goal actually was to use wave action uh, to be able to get to the altitude. I had been working with a lead technical, and this is another one of these world leaders, a uh, person that helped a glider pilot get over 50,000 feet at Minden. Uh, and he, the glider guy did that, as you're probably well aware of getting at the leading edge of a lenticular cloud, you'll get an enormous amount of lift. So I had hoped to be able to do that. There were some lenticular clouds, but they were over Reno. And this gentleman had mentioned, and I had my plane staged out at Minden before this flight, waiting for him to call me. When he called me to come out to do the flight, I, I left immediately, but I was for, unfortunately about two days late. A gentleman from Japan set a national Japanese record for altitude there two days before I set my record. But when I got there, the, the, the conditions were fizzling. Uh, I tried to work my way out of the wave window box area and get over a lenticular cloud before my canopy frosted and the air traffic controller told me, no, 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 back in the box. And I knew <laughs> what he meant. So I worked my way back over there and it, you know, all's well. But I continue to climb uh, through about flight level uh, 290. I had an anomaly and I got a big pop out of the airframe that on a scale of the 1 to 10 hit about 11 for me on a pucker factor. <laughs> and I, I didn't know what it was. Uh, I knew it wasn't normal. And my thoughts were abort or not. And I leveled for a minute and I felt the plane out with through the controls to feel, is anything feeling spongy or uniquely different uh, with the airframe? Yep. And it didn't. It felt normal. So I decided, well... Uh, what's the difference if you fall from 290 or 350? You know, might as well go finish this. So I went ahead and continued to climb. Uh, when I was getting close to 350, I decided it was getting slow enough. I was down to uh, just slightly under 50 feet a minute uh, at 350. And I decided to do both my maximum altitude and my altitude in horizontal. And altitude in hor horizontal means that you have to maintain your airspeed and be within 150 feet for 90 seconds. Uh, so I basically did them both at the same time. And as soon as I got the uh, significant, I probably stayed at about three minutes just to sure that I had a window uh, and I had a barometric pressure gauge reading that uh, that was sealed back in the back seat that has electronic code to get into that I didn't even know how to access it. And also I had a smoke drum in there that some of the gliders do as a backup to register the barometric pressure altitude. So after I did what I wanted to, I checked with ATC to find out whether any gliders were around me. And unfortunately there were a couple well below me and I was completely frosted over so 
I went down to probably about 250 before my canopy cleared off, and then I could safely descend from that point and assure that I was able to stay clear of the gliders uh, during the rest of that that flight uh, profile descent. I landed. How, how did you navigate with a frosted over canopy? How did you navigate and stay straight and level? I had uh, two instruments. One was a electronic turn coordinator. Mm-hmm. So I did what you do in your IFR training with a partial panel. You fly the air con- uh, the turn coordinator and airspeed. I did that, and then I had a real mini, I think it was called a Garmin 90 back then, a real tiny Garmin GPS. And I had plotted the box of what the wave window was so I could visually see where I was in that box the entire time. And there are a lot of people, to include Bruce Bohannon, thinking that I had used wave action to do and attain that altitude. But I can show you, and you have a copy of it, the barometric plot uh, the, uh, the the barrow indicates that it's a standard, standard linear with no spikes in it uh, altitude uh, transition on the entire climb. So in no way was I able to use wave action like I had hoped, and that wasn't part of the formula. Well, did you find out what the pop did was? Uh, yeah, it was kind of funny there. I appreciate that. Uh, so after getting on the ground and handing over the barometric pressure and them unsealing me and handing them over the barometric, you hand that off and do that. Uh, you know, obviously, after you have an event like that, your head's spinning, like you mentioned, to know what that pop was. Well, I jotted off a note to Bert Rattan. And once again, he's one of the busiest guys in the world. And he was nice enough to say, uh, you know, my bet is you had a slight delamination between the plexiglass and the canopy frame. And then I did a tap test, and sure enough, he was spot on. And the canopy is sandwiched in the canopy frame with an L step, a physical L, that would not allow it to ever depart, even if you were to have a significant delamination, of which mine wasn't. But my canopy was taped down uh, to the airframe to seal it off. And the canopy and the airframe have different expansion contraction rates. So it gets torqued during that time. Did the, so did the plastic it. delaminate? No, the plastic the, the delaminated. Plexi? Yeah, the plexic delaminated in a, about a two and a half inch long area to the airframe uh, or the frame that holds that plexiglass to the airplane. Oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay. But again, it's sandwiched with an L-step, and it would, even if that were to crack radically, it would never come out of there physically. Right, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It's a mechanically uh, held-in feature uh, that it has. So, uh, you know, basically it all worked as planned, and all the projections that I had made had come to fruition. I got to the altitude I wanted. Uh, I put everything away. I had a lot of helpers. I had a P210 there, pressurized, which would, and the colonel had set me up with an altitude chamber to evacuate to should I get the bends. So the bends was one of the very critical things 
Are you both scuba divers or not? Uh, I, I'm very familiar with the bends. Okay, so basically, when you go from a high pressure to a lower, the nitrogen comes out of your bloodstream and causes neurological issues. So uh, the biggest concern the colonel had for me on this flight was getting the bends at altitude. So I was going from a higher pressure, 6,000 feet, to a much, much lower pressure at 35,000 feet. Uh, so it would, I'd have the propensity of getting the bends. And the prevention from that is to do what the U-2 and the SR-71 drivers do. And they pre-breathe 100% oxygen for an hour before they take off. And that gets the nitrogen out of their system. So you're uh, very unlikely to get it because you're breathing 100% oxygen in the airplane under the mask the whole time. Now, right. What were, I understand when, it, when Go you, ahead, Brian. Uh, when you were flying, did you have any um, uh, equipment on you, like uh, blood oxygen meters or pulse meters or any of that kind of stuff, monitoring your health while you were up there? Uh, I would have loved to have had a pulse ox, and they were not prolifically available like they are now. I'm, uh, you know, I've been an EMT for a number of years, and I've got pulse oxes around the house. And I fly with mine all the time. And I find, as an example, as I age, I've got to do a higher flow rate setting than what my uh, device shows me I should have to a given altitude. So, yes, I watch that all the time. But, no, I did not have that available for the flight. And they weren't commonly available during that era. You know, surprising, you know, when you go back uh, almost 25 years now, uh, there were a lot of things that they have now, like electronic instrumentation, that I would have loved to have had. I have, for my Aranka Super Chief, which is a non-electrical plane, uh, I've got a Dynon attitude indicator that gives me uh, turn coordinator information. It gives me all the attitude information. Uh, it gives me artificial uh, vision, Yeah, on and on and on. Yeah. Different world. Yeah, it's incredible. I I picked up a pulse oximeter for my for for myself, and it's like 150 bucks off Amazon, and and uh, no problem at all. Yeah, I I highly recommend people having them. In fact, I went to a fly-in that a buddy had his wife uh, get into some uh, issues, and believing that it was oxygen related from all the symptoms, I loan I lent him my uh, pulse ox. So she could do some uh, numbers to find out what kind of flow rate she needed uh, for the return flight. Uh, so I recommend them for everyone, uh, without a doubt. What uh, what was it like? So at that pressure, um, the the uh, blood uh, oxygen concentration is well understood, but you must also be getting close to the triple point of the fuel. Like, doesn't it doesn't it gel or something up there? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's and an you're embarrassing. Also, it's you're an really close one to too. the at that pressure. If you warm it up just a little bit, doesn't it boil as well? Uh, it's not boiling the issue, believe it or not. But it's funny because you you brought this up. I'm laughing internally because I'm slightly embarrassed. But <laughs> I gave a presentation at Oshkosh uh, uh, just by happenstance, I got called in front of, uh, I don't know, I'll bet it was 1,200 people to do a lecture and summation of what I did in this right after I'd done it. 
in at the end of the presentation, and I had mentioned I had gotten to 62 degrees below zero, which was, I had failed to mention the, to this to you earlier, I had to verify what those barometric pressures and what the temperatures were by balloon data that was launched from Reno at about the time that I had flown. And they used that to do the math for finding out, uh, running the numbers on what my altitude actually gotten to. But at any rate, I got done and I mentioned that I'd gotten to 62 degrees below zero and how cold it was. And after I'd gotten done with this big presentation at Oshkosh, uh, this gentleman with a Shell Oil logo on his shirt saddled up next to me uh, to say, do you know what temperature 100 low lead freezes at? And I knew I'd been had. uh, (laughs) And that would have been the number. You know, he said... Hunter Lola freezes at about 60 below zero. And out of all the questions and all the experts that I have asked, that never came to my mind, nor did anyone else mention it. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the I gotchas. And can you imagine what uh, uh, Kelly Johnson went through in his development when he was breaking all these new territories and, and boundaries of the I gotchas that you don't know until you know. Yeah. So I really admire that, but it is something to bear in mind whenever you go after any action like this, you can't ask enough questions uh, of the experts because uh, they're going to help you minimize that chance and, and that would be the one I got you that I had in the flight. Wow. <laughs> Man. Of course, there's still a little bit of heat from the engine compartment, I'm assuming. But still, that's, yeah, that's it, it's insulated line. in the fuel tanks, which are in foam. And it would have taken longer to cold, cold soak. So that's, that's why I got away with it, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, yada, yada. But. Uh, again, I don't know how I'd preheat the fuel if I were to do something like that and want to go higher. I'd probably be more inclined to insulate it uh, rather than heat it uh, because it would take a little while to code soak. And I did not plan to be up there that long. Okay, so actually, you know, I, I attained 35,027 feet of certified altitude uh, for the highest in C1A that's ever been attained. And I upped the ante a lot. Uh, I think I was like 4,500 feet more than what Brohannon had gotten or something like that. It was rather significant, whatever it was. And I asked Bruce if he was ever going to go after it again. And after he had that experience of running out of nitrous, he looked at me kind of cockeyed and say, there's not enough money in the world. (laughs) Man, that record, though, is asking to be broken 25 years later. Oh, I'll help you, Butter. I'll help you. I'm uh, body working right now, so we're getting there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, keep, keep it up. You know, uh, a lot of that is just setting goals for going after something like that. And yep. little did I know that by having done this, the accolades that I would get and the context that would be established of people that I never dreamed I'd be able to rub shoulders with. Uh, that includes astronauts. I had a, I published a, I don't know, about a five-page article in sport aviation. And 
I put my email address on there, and one of the replies that I got back was from an SR-71 driver, and he said, there aren't many people that can appreciate what you did, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. And, and following it, uh, I got a lot of recognition at work from it. Uh, MIT happened to find out about it when I was still with General Motors, and General Motors tasked me to be the lead engineer to orchestrate a course, which was a senior mechanical engineering capstone course at MIT uh, with 125 students uh, for a semester. So I got to be a guest professor at MIT, uh, which was probably one of the highest honors of my life. And I had so much fun doing it. And I could go on and on with different things of that nature that came out of my having done this. Wow. Man, what a journey. Oh, unbelievable. You know, to think in the build process, I certainly never dreamed I'd be doing something this. I, I was really meticulous and highly focused with the quality control elements. Uh, I know it's a solid plane to allow for it to get me all the places throughout the U.S., Canada. Uh, you know, how many planes have been in the Northwest Territory uh, from down in this region? I'm, yeah. I bet it's not many. Uh, no. You know, things of that nature. Yeah. Man. It's incredible. Oh, what do you Question? think? Any yep. other questions, Brian? No, I, I've been sitting here listening on the edge of my seat. This has uh, been fantastic. All right. Well, Super. maybe that's a good place to wrap it up then. Okay, partner. It's been a delight. I thank you both. Uh, there is somewhere out there a video uh, that's about this length uh, of me doing this at an EA chapter meeting. Anyone's welcome to uh, take a look at that. Uh, if they want to Google my name and world altitude record, they could probably come up with it. I don't know the exact URL, but that given, I thought I'd mention that as well. Awesome. Yeah. We'll look okay. for that. Yeah. Excellent. Any further questions, feel free. Uh, it's been a delight to have a chance to have you folks ask the great questions that you did, and I look forward to you having a chance to pass this on. Well, it's, it's, a, it's such a great thing to be able to pass that on and to maybe inspire some people to try a record or two. Um, Jim's talked so much about the altitude records, but what about the speed records, the distance records? The speed over a thousand kilometers, the speed over five hundred kilometers, two thousand kilometers, absolute distance. Uh, so it's not just altitude that the FAI holds records for, and many, many of those records are have been uh, held by the same person for twenty-five years, similar to Jim's. I, so a lot of these are just begging to yeah. be taken. I have my eye on a record that uh, nobody's ever taken. So. <laughs> <laughs> There are, uh, that's a great point to uh, point out that there's there's all kinds of different records to include, and it's not one that I would personally be interested in, but if a person is interested in just getting a record, if you go from one town to another and no one else has set a speed record between those two places, you can go fly it and get a record <laughs> for that, Okay. It's not my forte because it's not challenging enough. But like you mentioned, all the speed, 
all the distance records, all the altitude records are the main three categories uh, that are out there and available in every weight category. Uh, one more question, actually, why you mentioned that. You won a Louis Bleero medal for that, didn't you? I did. Uh, basically, those that are not familiar with Louis Bleero, he was the first to fly across the English Channel. And it's a very prestigious medal. And because I'd gotten uh, as high as I did and uh, it was impressive enough, uh, I received a Louis Bellerio for it. So I hold the two U.S. Uh, altitude and altitude horizontal record and the world, both the world records in altitude and horizontal. And I also hold a Louis Bellerio. Uh, from this flight activity. Do they give you an actual medal or is it a plaque or how does that work? It's a medal. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful medal that's engraved with my name on it. Oh man. Uh, One day. And yeah. Oh, it's cool. <laughs> yeah. I love it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time again. My good pleasure. to catch up with you too. Yeah. You too as well. Good luck with the building. Keep it up. And uh, it was a pleasure meeting you both. And should anyone have a question on this, uh, feel free to give them my email address, which is H-I-L-O-N-G, the number two, at yahoo.com is my email address. And I'd be happy to answer questions or uh, feel free to give them a call. Thank you. Awesome. My pleasure. It was incredible. Okay. Thank you. Happy trails. You guys have a good evening. Yeah, you too.